It's really good to be together, isn't it? Welcome to all of you, especially if you're a guest, maybe with us for the very first time. All of you joining us at the bridge out in Glendive and via the web. Cool to be with you. It's hard to believe that it's week four of five already of it, uh, This Is It series. Time just flies when you're having fun and just one more week left after this one. And speaking of next week, I need to give a little disclaimer about next week. Men, just in case you weren't aware, next weekend is Valentine's Day weekend, okay? Deek. Make a mental note. You need to do something about that, those of you men who have significant others. And uh, next week's MJ song is very fittingly The Way You Make Me Feel. And the text from the Bible, just to heat it up a little more that we're going to be in, is the Song of Solomon. And candidly, uh, the Song of Solomon is far from being rated G, okay? I don't know how else to say it. Uh, and some people say the Bible is boring, right? But uh, my view is that you've got to have something wrong with you to read a book like the Song of Solomon in the Bible and get to the end of it and say, that was boring. I think there's something wrong with you uh, uh, if you come to that conclusion. So in light of the biblical text for next week, our desire to talk very openly and honestly about the, what the Bible is saying about our expression of sex inside the marriage covenant, how that is designed to make you feel, getting back to the song, The Way You Make Me Feel, uh, there's this group called the Sermon Rating People. I don't know who they are, but they've slapped uh, a sixth grade and above rating on next week's message in this room. Some of you are accustomed, I know, to bringing your kids in here, which isn't necessarily the best thing for everyone involved, especially your kids. But next week in particular, sixth grade and above, please, only in this room. If you forget and bring your younger than sixth grader in here, I assure you, you are going to have some very challenging questions to answer when we're all done. That's next week. Uh, contain your excitement until then, if you will. Our friend uh, Todd Barr and his family are in Seattle. Aaron is his wife. Their kids are Hannah and Gavin, and they're little kids, and Todd has cancer, and he's way, way, way too young to have cancer, and they've been fighting this cancer battle hard, 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 and valiantly is the only word I know to sum up the way they've been fighting this, and they've been fighting it since early last spring, and they're in Seattle because that's where Todd's treatment is centered, and this week Todd's battle got even more gnarly than it has been, and I just ask you please, as their church family, to fervently, if you would, pray for the whole Bar family through this incredibly difficult season that they're in and have been in, and uh, have ahead of them still. The whole Bar family has been very, very integral in the life of Journey since we started. Nell, who is Todd's mom, she prays with me before almost every service and has for over four years back in Guest Central. Uh, and Tara, who is Todd's sister, she's on our kids' ministry staff. Many, many, many of you know her from uh, her doing a great job teaching and shepherding and discipling your children. And then Ron, who is Todd's dad, he's an usher around here, serves on the teardown team. And Jeremy, who is Todd's brother-in-law, he's an usher all around, utility guy around here. Todd and Aaron themselves have served in multiple ways. They've been with us since the beginning of this whole deal. And so would you just please pray for Todd's comfort in these days? Uh, pray for their time together. The entire family is in Seattle this weekend, and would you just pray for their time together as a family, if you would? And if the Lord nudges you, prompts you to be in touch with them, do that. Just go, yep, I need to do that, and pick up the phone and call or email. And They have a Caring Bridge site, and you can tap into all of that. Journey set up a fund for them to help them with their finances. Todd is a self-employed general contractor, and as you might imagine, his revenue stream, his income stream has been 
just about eliminated for almost a year now. So if you'd like to give to them, if the Lord prompts you in that way, just memo your check, bar family, and we will direct those resources accordingly. And can I just invite and challenge you to just get around the bars, however the Lord directs you, and just keep that up, keep that up, keep that up. If you have a Bible, I invite you to turn to Matthew chapter 5. If you would, we're going to be in the book of Matthew chapter 5 today. We're hearing from God through his word, the Bible, the sacred text, and through the songs of Michael Jackson. Today, like the video said, is the song, Beat It. And Beat It has been one of my favorite MJ songs since I was nine years old. My parents, for my ninth birthday, bought me a Sony Walkman, and it was the very cool kind that actually had a speaker on it as well. So you could listen to it through the headphones, or you could listen to it without the headphones through this unbelievable speaker, believe me on the 1983 Sony Walkman. They also, to accompany my Sony Walkman, they bought me the Thriller cassette tape. Some of you don't even know what a cassette tape is, <laughs> do you? And I would play it over and over and over again, especially that song, Beat It. And there's a whole bunch of cool things about the song, Beat It. Uh, Jackson wrote this one uh, for himself. He wrote it, actually, this song. And he wrote it uh, because of a nudge by his producer, Quincy Jones. Quincy Jones said, hey, why don't you think of a way to write a song along the lines of My Sharona that had been such a smash hit for the knack just a few years prior. And Jackson, when he was reflecting back on the song Beat It, he said, I wanted to write a new kind of rock song, the kind of rock song that I would go out and buy, but yet totally different from all the rock music that I was hearing on Top 40 radio. And if you listen carefully to the lyrics, you know that they're all about life on the streets and gang activity, which is a little weird because Michael was a son of privilege, right? Uh, he was a superstar from his earliest days, and he was homeschooled and tutored at home and knew nothing of gang activity or life on the streets. That's a little interesting. Uh, uh, the lyric, there's this interesting line in the song. I'm sure you've uh, picked up on it. Uh, Showing how funky and strong is your fight. You know that lyric from the song. Uh, it's often misheard and misunderstood to actually be something that you can't repeat in church or on the radio, but it's actually showing how funky and strong is your fight. Did you know that Eddie Van Halen, Van Halen, plays the electric guitar solo in the song Beat It? Did you know that that's Van Halen? Quincy Jones, who was producing the Thriller album for Jackson, recruited him and uh, said, hey, would you just come in and play this little solo? I don't have any money to pay you. And so uh, he came in and played for free, unless you count the two six-packs of beer that Jones provided for Eddie to drink while he was recording the deal. And uh, Van Halen said, look, everybody from the band was out of town, his band, talking about Van Halen. And so I said, who's going to know if I played on this kid's record? I didn't want any money, and I thought, well, maybe Michael Jackson will give me dance lessons someday or something like that. And when Jones recruited Van Halen to play Beat It, he said, I'm not going to tell you what to play or how to play it because the reason I'm asking you is because of how you play. And Jones said that's exactly what he did. He came in and he played his, and I quote, butt off about Van Halen. Uh, Van Halen, because he appeared on the Thriller album, actually inspired a whole bunch of Van Halen fans to cross over into the uh, camp of Michael Jackson and become Michael Jackson fans. You all know that Beat It won a Grammy for Best Rock Vocal Performance in 83. The Thriller album won also Best Record of the Year that year, a Grammy. And then, of course, you all know this, that the Thriller album went on to be the best-selling album of all time, a title it still holds to this day. Now, that's a whole bunch of trivia about the song Beat It. You just want to hear the song, don't you? So, well, listen in. 
Who needs coffee when you have that? <laughs> Eddie Van Halen. What? You got Bobby. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> They told them, don't you ever come around here. Don't want to see your face. You better disappear. There's fire in their eyes. Their words are really clear. So beat it. Just beat it. You better run. You better do what you can. Don't want to see no blood. Don't be a macho man. You want to be tough. Better do what you can. So beat it. But you want to be bad. Just beat it, beat it, beat it, beat it. No one wants to be defeated. Showing how funky and strong is your fight. It doesn't matter who's wrong or right. Just beat it. Beat it. And then to the scriptures, Matthew chapter 5, verse 39. Check this out. But I say, this is Jesus talking himself. But I say, do not resist an evil person. If someone slaps you on the right cheek, offer the other cheek also. Whoa. It's been said that few passages of the sacred text are more misunderstood than that one right there, which is completely understandable, isn't it? We run into that text and we go, what in the world is this? Do not resist an evil person. What? Really? And if someone slaps you on the right cheek, offer them the other cheek also. Maybe your version of the Bible says something like, turn to them the other cheek as well. And we run into that and we say, huh? Jesus, are you kidding me? Do not resist an evil person. And if somebody slaps you on the right cheek, give them the other cheek as well. What in the world is that? Preston, he's one of our five-year-old sons, and he's, over, uh, he's in kindergarten over at the big highlight school. The other day after I picked him up from school, I asked him how his day was. Preston ordinarily loves school. He, he, I mean, he'd go every single day, all year long, all day long, if you let him. He just loves school. He said, Dad, it wasn't a very good day. I said, well, what, what's up? He said, Dad, there's this big boy from another grade, and he picks on me, and what he does is at recess and at lunchtime, he holds me down on the ground. He, like, sits on top of me, and he grinds my face into the snow, and he won't let me up off of the snow. I say, get off, get off, get off, and he won't get off. One day, Preston came home, and he had this giant laceration on his face from this kid grinding his face into the snow. I'm like, what in the world? And as Preston is relaying this story to me, I'm driving the big 15-passenger van, and I'm getting more and more angry. And so I like locked up the brakes on the van, and I'm like, who is this kid? Where is he? And I'm like looking out across the playground because I want to have a pastoral conversation <laughs> with the kid and his parents, right? I'm all fired up. I want to know him. I want to talk to him. And so Preston keeps telling me the story, and I'm working this through in my head and in my heart, and he keeps talking about how big this guy is. I said, does he do it every day? Yeah, Daddy's been doing it for a long time. Now he does it every day, and how mean this kid is. He holds him down. He won't let him up. He keeps him down in the snow. And I'm going like, what in the world? Especially what in the world in light of this text, right? But I say, do not resist an evil person, Jesus says. If someone slaps you on the right cheek, offer the other cheek also. What do you say to your kid who's being held down on the ground, facing the snow by a big kid, big bully on the playground, when you've got what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5, verse 39, fully in view? What does it look like for my son Preston, five years old, to turn the other cheek in that situation? Does he have to turn the other cheek? Or do I get to, as dad, say, Preston, you kick him in the head or anywhere else you have to kick him to get him off of you. I'm like, what's right? What's your counsel to your kid in that circumstance? Now, we know what the discipline of psychology tells us. 
Psychology informs us of something that we all know and understand at a gut level. Psychology tells us that our natural human tendency in response to mistreatment, our basic natural reactionary knee-jerk response to mistreatment in the face of an evil person is either to fight or to flee, right? It's more commonly known as the fight or flight deal, response. When confronted by an evil person, when we're subjected to mistreatment, we all either fight, we power up, we say, you're not going to hurt me, and if you do hurt me, I'm going to hurt you back, and we either fight back physically with fists or we fight back with words, don't we? We fight or we flee. We fight with words, we fight with fists. Uh, do you remember the Seinfeld episode? Great show, by the way. George Costanza, he's insulted by a coworker during an office meeting. I don't even recall what the insult was, but George had been stung, burned by his insult. A few days later, George, he, in his usual Costanza fashion, he finally thinks a couple of days later of a great comeback to the office worker's insult. He starts then making plans to insult him back, sort of in ambush fashion. There was only one problem. The coworker had resigned from the company that George and he had worked for, and he had moved to Ohio and taken a job there. They're like, oh, well, it's all over. Well, if you know anything about George Costanza, he's not going to let that go. So he books a plane ticket. He flies to Ohio. He orchestrates a meeting with this new company's top brass to set and sets the stage to get even with his former coworker. Well, Remember, this is George Costanza we're talking about, right? How do you think that went? It didn't. The plan backfired right in his face. As George seizes the opportunity to deliver his insult, his former coworker came back with an even snappier insult, and once again, everyone is laughing at George, as you might expect. Now, that is the fight response. We power up and we fight back. Oftentimes, we do it with our words. Sometimes we do it with our fist, the fight response. The second natural knee-jerk human response to mistreatment is to flee. We sense mistreatment and we jet. We're, as one guy put it, out like trout. We're not dealing with it. We run home. We, as Michael Jackson so eloquently put it, we beat it. We avoid the situation entirely. And so you've got this natural human response to mistreatment. You either fight, you power up, you fight with words, you fight with fists, or you flee, you run, you jet, you're out of there. You run and you hide on the couch underneath a blanket and you eat haagen or something like that. One way or the other, we fight or we flee. Think about your knee-jerk response to mistreatment at the hands of an evil person. What do you do? Are you a fighter? Do you power up with words or even fists, perhaps? Or are you a beat-it kind of person? Do you flee, fight or flight? We've all got one. What's yours? Now understand, one of those responses isn't necessarily better than the other. Both of them have their weaknesses, believe me. And here's what Jesus is getting at in Matthew chapter 5, verse 39. He says, look, Followers of mine will swim counter to our most, most natural knee-jerk inclinations when faced with mistreatment at the hands of evil people. We'll swim directly upstream against that which comes naturally to us. Notice, Jesus does not say fight. He doesn't say power up and fight back with words or fight back with fists. And he doesn't say flee either. He doesn't say beat it. He doesn't say just get out of there. Instead, Jesus gives us what we'll call option three, the third way, the third option, a third way to respond 
in the face of mistreatment at the hands of evil people. He directs that we offer the other cheek. Offer the other cheek. Now I know there's a whole bunch of us and that is the precise response we expect from Jesus. Because there's a whole bunch of us that hold to a view that says, oh yeah, Jesus Christ is and was nothing more than a doormat. Lots of us have understood Jesus to just be a doormat. And now he says we're not even supposed to fight back in response to mistreatment at the hands of an evil person. We're not supposed to fight back. We're not supposed to flee. Instead, we're just supposed to join him in being a doormat. Just lie down. And that's the prevailing view of a whole bunch of people. Jesus is a doormat. Jesus is a wimp. And this text backs it up, doesn't it? It just proves it. Because Jesus is saying, look, join me in this wimpdom deal. Be a wimp. Take it. Lie down. Take whatever lumps that they're dishing out. Just take them. Let them walk all over you. There's even a sense in this, isn't there, that we're supposed to play the part of a victim, right? Right? They hit you on one side and you just say, oh, all right, hit me again. Just play the part of a victim. We're supposed to follow Jesus on the way to becoming a doormat. Just take it. Suck it up. But as I've listened and as I've studied, I want us to talk about this third option. It's a third way of understanding and looking at this text that I think we'll find to be very challenging, maybe even liberating for us. What if instead of Jesus saying that he's a doormat, and what if Jesus instead of saying that we're supposed to join him in being a doormat, what if Jesus is saying when he said those words, offer the other cheek also, what if it's nothing to do with being a doormat? What if it's nothing to do with lying down and taking it? What if what Jesus is saying is actually along the lines of one of the most bold and one of the most subversive instructions ever given in all of human history? Might it even be that Jesus' words to offer the other cheek also were the furthest thing from cowardice, the furthest thing from submission, the furthest thing from just take it, and are instead an act of deep inner strength and dignity reclamation? But before we can understand it in that light, we've got to unpack the text a bit. We need to understand the context into which Jesus spoke these words. Check this out. On the day that Jesus addresses the crowd with what became Matthew chapter 5, verse 39. It wasn't that, by the way, when Jesus spoke it. He was just talking then. We assigned the numbers and such to it much later. And so as Jesus is addressing this crowd, understand that it was completely and totally legal to backslap somebody across the face with your right hand, the back of your right hand. To backslap people in the day of Jesus Christ was perfectly legal and was actually very common practice in the day of Jesus Christ. This was a power-based culture that Jesus was living in. People with power used all sorts of shaming tactics to keep people who they perceived to be inferior in line with what they wanted them to do and be about. Now, no one was backslapping people to cause great physical harm or serious bodily injury. That wasn't why they were doing it. Instead, it was all about causing psychological harm. It was all about shaming them. It was all about humiliating them. Not at a surface level either. At the core of who they are. 
It was about degrading, humiliating, shaming. It's like the days of Jesus Christ version of inflicting pain, like twisting someone's arm behind their back until they cry out, uncle, right? Hey, you, you remember who's in charge around here. You remember your place, and your place is way, way underneath where I live, where I am. It's shaming behavior, nothing more, nothing less. And it was very common for people in power to do it to their subordinates, to their inferiors, to those they just perceived as subordinates or inferiors. Romans did it to Jews all the time, backslap across the face. Parents did it to their children, backslap across the face. Husbands backslap their wives right across the face. Masters backslap their slaves right across the face. It was happening all day, every day, all over the place. Understand this, though. While the right-handed backslap was perfectly legal and common in the days of Jesus Christ, it was completely and totally illegal to strike someone with a closed fist. That was a no-no. That was out of bounds. You were going to get in trouble if you did that. It was also illegal, out of bounds, you were getting in trouble if you slapped someone with an open fist, open uh, palm across the face. That made the traditional slap illegal as well out of bounds. So you can backslap somebody with the back of your right hand. The right hand closed fist punch, a right hand open palm slap are off limits. If you do either one of those things, you're in trouble. There's a price to pay. Now some of you are sitting there thinking like, why are you only talking about the right hand? What's the deal with the left hand? I mean, a person's got two, right? What about the left hand? Well, a person sort of has two hands. In Eastern culture, The left hand was considered to be unclean, and this, believe me, carries over all the way to today. It was completely taboo to do anything public with your left hand. If you made any type of public gesture with your left hand, you would have been practically excommunicated from your community. You may as well really have not had a left hand. Why? Some of you are wondering. Uh, uh, There's no fancy way to say this. Uh, There was no such thing as Charmin Ultra in the days of Jesus Christ. And in the absence of the invention of toilet paper, you had your left hand. That means your left hand was dirty, was unclean. Which also means that to use your left hand in public for any reason was way, way, way out of bounds. Right? So we've got the back of the right hand used for backslapping frequently. It's fine, it's kosher, it's legal, it's common. A right-handed close fist punch or open palm slap, that's illegal. You're going to pay a serious price if you did either one of those. And then you have your left hand, which is very, very, very unclean. No using that one. We'll just keep it back here. Right? And so you apply all of that cultural understanding into then Jesus' directive in Matthew chapter 5, verse 39, don't you? Offer the other cheek also. And you begin to see and you begin to understand and you begin to grasp that Jesus uttering those words meant, watch this, that it was time for the shame and it was time for the humiliation and it was time for the degradation to end and end now. You see, Jesus is talking to people who are accustomed to being degraded and humiliated over and over and over again. It was a culturally normative and accepted practice in his day. Backslap, backslap, backslap across the face. And finally, Jesus says, it is time for all of that to end. Because see, guys, it's not about resisting. It's not about setting oneself against the offending party. Earlier and later in this same passage, Jesus is talking about loving our neighbors. 
It's about loving your neighbors. It's about loving even your enemies. And it isn't then about fighting back. It isn't about beating it. It's not about fleeing. It's about somebody hitting you across the face and you turning the other cheek to them. Therefore, watch this, making it impossible for them to shame you any further. They can't do it anymore when you offer them the other cheek. You see the mechanics that are in play there? When you turn that other cheek to someone, it becomes nearly physically impossible to backhand slap with the right hand and hit the left cheek. You can't do it. Almost can't do it. The nose gets in the way. You you can't do it. Which means that the only way to actually hit somebody on the other cheek that you've just availed to them is with a closed fist or an open palm, neither of which are kosher. And you can't use the dirty left hand far, far from kosher. And so Jesus says, offer the other cheek also. That means, folks... Jesus is saying, it is time for you to step up and it is time for you to reclaim your humanity. It is time for you to reclaim your dignity. It is time for you to reclaim the truth that you are a beloved child of the Son, a son of the Most High God, a daughter of the Most High God, a beloved daughter of the Most High God. And you do not deserve this degradation. You do not deserve this mistreatment. You do not deserve this abuse. You do not deserve this humiliation. Offer the other cheek. Knock it off. Knock it off. And we got to understand that when offering the other cheek, it's not like the one who is doing so is saying, thank you, sir. May I have another, please? Nothing even close. Quite the opposite, actually. He or she instead is making this incredibly bold declaration that they're finished with you shaming them. They are finished with you humiliating them. They're telling the one actually who is shaming them that they are equals, that they're a child of God, that they're reclaiming their humanity, they're reclaiming their dignity, and they're saying once and for all, I will not have you degrade me any further because now it is physically impossible for you to use this crazy shaming slap that was culturally normative in the day of Jesus to keep on shaming me. You can't do it anymore. There's this element that by offering the other cheek, that the one who is accustomed to being shamed is actually and finally calling the shamer out. And they're calling him out saying, I'm on your same level. You are a human being and I am a human being. Knock it off. You see, it isn't about powering up. It isn't about fighting back, words or fists. And it isn't just about fleeing, running, hiding on the couch underneath a blanket, eating haagen That is not what it is about. Instead, it's about this third way, a way that, believe it or not, is actually in the process of showing love to your enemy, to the one who is shaming you, the one who is humiliating you, loving your enemy. And so you hear all that, and we can understand that all day long, can't we? But we must come down to the question, what does it look like for us to offer the other cheek right here, right now? How does that practically flesh out? As I think about my son Preston and his playground troubles, what does it look like for Preston when he's got this big old bully sitting on his head on the playground? What does it look like for him to turn the other cheek? And here's the deal, I gotta be completely honest with all of you. 
I cannot answer that question all cut and dried like we'd love it to be. Right? We want it to be all black and white and just to say like, yep, turning the other cheek means you do this and you don't do this and you do this and you don't do this and you do this and you don't do this. But this cannot work that way. This cannot work that way. The reality is that there are no easy answers to this. At best, there are suggestions. And so let's work through a few suggestions. Maybe you're a person who's a fighter and that's your knee-jerk response. When you're faced with injustice and evil at the hands of an evil person, mistreatment at the hands of an evil person, you're a fighter and you power up. And for you who are a fighter, maybe for you the third way, the turn the other cheek way for you is that you would actually take some steps back from the situation. When you feel yourself powering up and when you feel yourself about to lunch, maybe even with a closed fist, and just cool down, just Breathe deep and relax and, here's a novel concept, don't fight back with words or fists. Or maybe you're a fighter. What if instead of powering up in a conflict situation with your arguments all spelled clearly out, ready to unload the verbal freight on someone's head, what if for you choosing the third way is all about closing your mouth and listening? And maybe for you it would be listening for the first time in your whole life, really? What if the third way is for you to actually enter into a conflict conversation with a series of questions that were all about really, truly understanding where the other person is coming from? And you're mining out data so that you can understand. Instead of powering up, you mine out data. You're on a quest to understand. And you listen to the answers for the answers. What if for you who are fighters, what if for you the third way is about putting yourself in the other person's shoes, maybe for just an instant, and seeing things from their vantage point? Maybe for you the third way, you who are fighters, what if you decided for once to not make it be all about you and make it about someone else, make it about them? That's if you're a fighter, some things to think on. Maybe you're a beat it kind of person. You're a person who flees, you run. You run when you're faced with mistreatment at the hands of an evil person. You take it lying down, you take it like a doormat. You become everyone else's whipping post. Maybe for you the third way is about crying out to God and asking him for the strength and the grace and the wisdom to actually stand up for yourself in a way that is healthy, not unhealthy, but in a way that is unhealthy, where you say, I I'm done with the shame, I'm done with the humiliation, I I'm all done with that. Turn to them the other cheek also. Maybe you've been a run, flee, beat it kind of person. Maybe for you, the third way is about using the voice that God gave you to name what you need and what you desire. Maybe for so long you've just been stuffing that stuff down and you've just been taking it. Perhaps even in a mistreating relationship, maybe even a mistreating marriage, a mistreating dating relationship, a mistreating friendship, and you've just been taking it. What if for you, turning the other cheek means you call out what you need and what you desire? All done being the doormat. I'm, I'm done with the mistreatment deal. 
I'm all done. Maybe you've been a beat it kind of a person and maybe for you the third way is in a very godly manner to confront the one who has hurt you or perhaps even the one who is hurting you right now. Maybe that involves an abusive relationship that you are in right now. And you just need to say, I'm done. Turning the other cheek. Show to them the other cheek also. I'm all done with you shaming me, with you humiliating me, with you mistreating me. I'm all done. Jesus says when we are confronted with evil people, it isn't about fighting. It's not about powering up. It isn't about winning. It isn't about who's wrong or right. It's not what it's about. And it's not about just beating cheeks out of there either running and hiding. Instead, he says, there's this other way. There is a way that shows love even to your enemies. A third way. Show to them the other cheek also. And as we consider how we respond to our enemies, recall, if you will, that the very greatest evil that was ever inflicted on another human being, the greatest evil that was ever endured is exactly what Jesus Christ experienced on the cross. Jesus' enemies, they brought all the evil that they could muster unto him. They called him names and they shouted obscenities and they spit on him. They did everything they could. You talk about unloading the freight on somebody. Man, did they do it. They did everything they could. They beat him repeatedly. They flogged him. And ultimately, they sent Jesus Christ, the perfect, sinless son of God, to the torture chamber of their day, the cross to die. They brought all the evil they could muster and they threw it all his way. They mocked him, they shamed him, they beat him, they flogged him. And look at 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 23 and 24. He, Jesus Christ, did not retaliate when he was insulted, nor threaten revenge when he suffered. He left his case in the hands of God who always judges fairly. He personally carried our sins in his body on the cross so that we can be dead to sin and live for what is right. It's not about fighting. It's not about powering up and it's not about fleeing so that we can live for what is right. By his wounds, you are healed, the Bible says. And that's what Jesus did. And he did it for you and he did it for me and he did it for all of humanity. Take your stuff, if you would, and set it aside. I just invite you to go to prayer. Just set the stage for you to listen into God and enjoy Him and hear from Him and share your heart with Him. Jesus did not retaliate when he was insulted, nor threaten revenge when he suffered. He left his case in the hands of God, who always judges fairly. He personally carried our sins, my sin, 
your sin in his body on the cross so that we can be dead to sin and live for what is right. By his wounds, you are healed. Have you made the choice? Have you made the decision to step across the line of faith into a relationship with Jesus Christ? If you haven't, what's keeping you from that today? Why not today? The reality is that Jesus loves you immensely, that he came to earth for the very purpose of bringing you back to God. He came to earth for the purpose of restoring all of us to the friendship with God that we were designed for, that we were made for. And if that's the desire of your heart today, I invite you to transact that with God right here, right now. You can do that by praying a prayer right where you're sitting, a prayer that goes something like this. I want a relationship with you, God. Just say that to him. And you don't have to say it aloud. Just say it in the silence of your heart. God, I want a relationship with you. Please come into my life. Please forgive me. As much as I can understand sitting here today, God, I acknowledge that you loved me so much that you sent your son to die on the cross to bring me back to you. And because of that gift, I repent, I turn, I turn from my own path and I'm going your way, God. Help me please begin that new life in you. And that decision to give your life to Jesus Christ is the biggest deal of your whole life. It's such a big deal that around here we invite people to tell us when they make that decision and so I'm going to ask you to do that with me right now. If you prayed with me just then, could I just ask you to slip your hand up and make eye contact with me? You can do that right now. Yeah, right, right there. Way to go. Right there. You're brand new. Right now. Way to go. Never the same. God, we love you with our whole lives. And God, we recognize that following you is not easy. just proves that you were right when you said this is going to be hard, it's going to be difficult, it's going to be arduous some days. Especially God when we're talking about how we deal with people who mistreat us, evil people who mistreat and shame and humiliate. As we consider what it looks like for us to offer them the other cheek also. Thanks, God, for not just making it about fighting. Thanks for not just making it about fleeing. Thanks for making it about loving even our enemies, God. I pray that you would show up in our lives in those circumstances and that you would make it very clear just what we're to do when we're faced with an evil person. That the thing that is 
the offering the other cheek in our circumstance would just be right there at the tip of our tongue, at the tip of our mind, wherever it needs to be, God, so that we can honor you and so that we can love our enemy. Thanks so much for sacrificing your son for us. It's a gift we don't take lightly nor for granted, God, but honor you through our very lives because of. Go with every person here. Give them strength and courage and boldness. Faith in these days. We love you, Jesus. Amen.